Daniel chapter 3. We're going to focus really from verse 19, but uh, crucial to what happens in the second half of the chapter is verses 16 to 18, where the friends give their answer to Nebuchadnezzar, who requires that they bow down to this idol, and uh, their defiance of him. That really sets up the drama of this story, and it sets up all that happens in the later half of the chapter. So uh, Derek, as I said, started this uh, chapter last week, and as you know, you may know, he's using film titles, and he started by preaching on this as Gold Rush, in reference to the big statue. Uh, Now, I wanted to come up with my own, so I decided on Deliverance. I don't necessarily recommend the movie, but Deliverance is um, crucial to what happens, specifically the deliverance of God for his people. You want sermon in a sentence, if you want to understand what's going on here, this is about the power of God to deliver his people from this particular fiery trial. Power of God to deliver his people. Okay, now as I said, uh, crucial to what happens here is an answer, in a sense, from God to a question that's been posed. King Nebuchadnezzar, powerful King Nebuchadnezzar, what does he say in verse 15? Again, if you were here, you may remember. But if you weren't here, let's just point this out. In verse 15, he says, okay, when you hear all this music, if you're walking about and you hear suddenly the band strike up, here's what I want you to do. Bow down and worship. And then he says this. He says, if you don't, you're going to get chucked in the fire. And then he says, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God's going to save you? Because I'm so powerful, and I've got such a big furnace, and I will throw you in it if you don't obey. Well, God will save you. This passage is an answer to that question. Also, it in many ways backs up what the friends say in verse 17. Look at verse 17. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves. We don't just stand here on our own before you. Because they say, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able. The God we serve is able. They know the power of their God. But then they say, and this is really important as well in verse 18, even if he does not, we want you to know that we won't bow down. Now, they're not defying the king and trusting in God just because they think God might get them out of this scrape. They're going to obey their God because of who he is. Because he he is the one that they trust in. And so right at this crucial point in their life, their life is in danger, they put their cards on the table and they say, we trust in our God. And he is the one that we will obey. So there's there's the the crux of the drama of the passage. Um, What I want to do this morning is to ask three questions. First question is simply, what happens? And then the second two questions are to do with application. First of all, how were the original hearers or readers to apply this? What were they to do with this story? And secondly, what are you and I to do with this story? How do you apply a story like this to here, now? So, first thing, simply what happens? Let's go through the next few verses. First thing that happens is God permits them to fall into the flames. They say God can rescue us from the flames. I'm sure they didn't want to go into the flames. Would you have? They believed that God could save them, but I'm sure they didn't want to have to go there. But God permits them to go into the fiery trial. 
So as uh, they defy Nebuchadnezzar. Now remember Nebuchadnezzar's uh, heard about their defiance. They didn't do it so obviously. I think Derek brought that out last week. They just simply didn't obey and they were told on. Somebody saw what they did and they told the king. And Nebuchadnezzar kind of gives them a second chance and he says, come on, I've told you, you need to bow down. So bow down now. And they say no. And Nebuchadnezzar's absolutely enraged by what happens here. Look at, look at how he reacts. Verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was furious. Says his attitude towards them changed. I gave you a second chance. You're not going to take it? That's it. You're going to die. It says he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. And he commanded some of his strongest soldiers to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was going to be no mistakes. There was no way these guys were going to be able to escape from what he wanted to happen to them. Uh, you see in verse 22, the king's man was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took them. He was absolutely enraged. Now, of course, if you think about the situation here, what's going on, what's the dynamic that the king has, he has summoned people from all over his kingdom uh, for this demonstration and for his requirement that they would bow down. Remember, uh, I think Derek again may have brought this out, the, the principle that they operated well of uh, with the people that they took into their empire as they conquered people was one of assimilation. So they would bring people from different cultures into their land. They would allow them to bring their own culture as long as they also bowed down, as in this instance, to the idol. As long as they assimilated and, be, and kind of merged they were quite happy. And before all of the people that he summoned, the king is defied. He's a powerful man. And he's probably not used to this kind of defiance. What would you think annoys a despotic ruler more than being defied before a large crowd of witnesses? You know, this isn't just like they privately said to the king, we'd rather not. Uh, we're not going to do that. In front of all these people, the king is defied. In front of the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials, we're not going to do it. And so he's absolutely enraged. And he throws them into the fire. Now, that should mean certain death. And so the question then is, does God abandon them to the flames? Does God just allow them to go and die? Well, no. In verse 24 and 25, we have a miracle. Now, Derek, I know last week, talked about how the greatest miracle in this passage was the faith. The courage that these three had in the first place to stand before the king and say, we won't do what you ask us to do, even though you're going to throw us into that big furnace. That, I absolutely agree. It was an an amazing miracle, the way God God worked to, to support them and to enable them to be able to say that. In verse 24 and 25, though, we have, in some ways, uh, the real mystery, the amazing mystery of what happens and what God is able to do. Nebuchadnezzar is having a very dramatic chapter here. You've already seen how angry he's got. He's he's enraged. But then, uh, presumably, he's settled down to watch the burning. Horrible thought, really, isn't it? (coughs) Maybe they've been dropped into an upper pit and he's able to watch lower down in some way. And he's settled down to watch and to see his power outworked. 
But he jumps up because he gets a surprise. Verse 24. King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement. He says, hang on, wasn't there just three people we put in there? I see four. I see four people. Who would have expected that? How would you have expected that? It doesn't make any sense. Why would there be four people in the flames? And more than that, as we know, none of them were harmed. Imagine it. Please don't get too comfortable in one sense with these miracles. They weren't running around panicking, desperately trying to pull their cords off and scrabble back up the pit. They were just there. Now, interestingly, from the point of view of the way this is written, uh, it's from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, isn't it? We don't get a little window of kind of conversation between them. We don't get right into the drama of what, what they're talking about, how they're feeling, what they're experiencing. Nebuchadnezzar simply says what he sees, and what he sees is four people, not three, and as he says, one of them looks like a son of the gods. What's going on here? This is the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's question. See, God goes with the three into the fire. He permits them to go in. They have to go. In this instance, the Lord allows for them to be put into this fiery trial, but then he goes there with them. Some people will say, and uh, I agree, this is a pre-incarnate example of the Lord Jesus coming to be with his people. Some will say, just a messenger of God, just an angel. But there are different instances, aren't there, in the Old Testament. Uh, We don't have time to go into them just now, but where in some way, before the incarnation of Jesus that we read about in the Gospels, we see the person of God come in human form to be at different times and in different occasions to be with his people. And uh, this is one such special occasion. Quite simply, the Lord goes to be with his people and to keep them safe. They're safe. They're in the middle of a furnace and they're totally safe. He has that power. He has that ability. Even though, if you were to say, if the least we could say, this isn't Jesus, it's just a messenger from God, it's just an angel of some sort, God has sent deliverance in the form of a messenger, in the form of an angel. So what this is telling us, and King Nebuchadnezzar himself interprets this thing, doesn't he? Later on, he he sees how God has sent deliverance for these people. And that's the, that's in some senses the kind of, the very visual miracle that we have. This picture of these three people, now four, completely at ease, completely safe in the middle of this huge death pit. That's the power of God. That's the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's question in verse 15. Who can save these people? Nobody's going to save these people. God can save these people. And he does in this instance. Power of God to rescue his people. So God permits them to go into the fire and then he rescues them and he saves them. And then the aftermath, of course. Just going to look briefly at this. What should have happened after this big calling together of all these provincial officials? What should have happened? Well, they should have all gone home. Probably, Nebuchadnezzar's desire was that they'd be talking about all that had happened. They'd be talking about the power of the king. They'd be talking about the magnificence of the statue and the grandeur of King Nebuchadnezzar's empire. I think they probably went home talking about the miracle that they'd just witnessed. Because you see... uh, the reaction of the crowd. King Nebuchadnezzar calls the three out. Now, interestingly, we see or hear no more of the fourth man. He calls the three out, and as they come out, 
it says in verse 27, the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. There was no hiding from this. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't hush it up. Couldn't pretend like nothing had happened. They came out in broad daylight and the crowds crowded round. And so their experience was to witness this. Now, what did they make of it? I don't know. It doesn't necessarily tell us, but they were certainly amazed. Who wouldn't be? Would they have heard King Nebuchadnezzar's question, who can rescue them? Would they have known of the testimony of these three friends? I think it's likely. And they see this power of God. What can we say of the king's response, the aftermath to this miracle? Well, he's obviously impressed, isn't he? Has he ever seen anything like this before? He received a personal defiance, and uh, then he received another jolt to his expectations. Usually what the king says happens. But here the king says doesn't happen. He's completely confounded by what happens. But he responds... And we can't say at this point that he's converted. But he is awestruck. And he does respond by, I think in some ways, basically putting God up the pecking order of the gods. He says, he makes another decree and he says to his people, um, that essentially you must give more respect to this God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar will be dealt with again when we come to chapter 4 by God. And we'll see the way in which God deals with him personally there. But see the way that God comes into his life and challenges his power and his expectations and uh, what he thinks he can achieve in his own human strength. This is an an instance of God doing that. God coming, challenging, undermining his ability and his power and continuing to show his power into his life. Nebuchadnezzar is awestruck. Nebuchadnezzar gives this new decree. And uh, it's just another thing for the people to follow at this point in time. Also, you'll see in verse 30, he promotes them. And in the purposes of God, here's another instance of these three faithful friends being used by God for his purposes in this civilization, in this kingdom. So these are people who already have influence. They are already being used by God. And, you know, an hour earlier, people would have thought them dead. That's the end of their influence. They're gone. Now they're promoted. They're faithful believers who God is now going to use further on in his, in, his, uh, in his work. So that's what happens. That's the unfolding of this great story, probably very familiar to many of you. Uh, and we see the power of God in this particular remarkable way. God doesn't always work like that. In this instance, he did. And it's the power of God to save his people. And I want to ask in two different ways how we can apply that. First of all, I want to look at uh, how, how could that be read by the original community, by those who would have received that? Is it just a story about three men, no, four men in a fire? Amazing story. Anybody, you could read that to anybody and they'd say, yeah, it's an amazing story. Is there more to it than that? And uh, then I want to apply it to ourselves. What does this say to an Israelite community uh, a long time ago from now who are undergoing massive persecution, who are maybe a minority group, who are being challenged to forget their identity, to assimilate, 
to forget their God, or at least to compromise on their God, whose way of life is being disrupted, and who are maybe thinking, is our God still there? Yahweh, the covenant-making and keeping God, is he still there? How Our lives are so hard. Is he still there? What does this say to them? Two things. First of all, the three friends didn't cave in. They didn't cave in. They were being asked to, essentially to deny God because they were being asked to say that God was just one of the gods. They could keep their God, Yahweh, but they had to bow down to this idol. That's what they were being asked to do, assimilate, merge in. It's easy to do that. Just do it. It's easy. And they say, no, <coughs> we won't do it. And why don't they do that? Well, because it contradicts the first two commandments. God says to his people uh, that he was the one true God and that they were to have no idols. They weren't to just go and worship any old thing that they'd made. Now, they had done that at points in their history, hadn't they? You remember back to an incident like the golden calf where they were unfaithful and uh, they were rebuked for something like that. And the message, the message to them then is of the example of these three friends who are faithful faithful in the face of this very real challenge that they faced. But the second thing to the Israelite community, to those who would have heard this, is that God is able to save. God is powerful to save. God is the one who brings deliverance for his people. God is the one they were to remember, and remembrance was such an important thing, an important faculty for this group of people, as it is for us today. Remember that he is the one who brought you out of Egypt. You were enslaved and he delivered you. He has not changed. He is the same God. And he has, in this instance again, in this particular example, shown his power by bringing deliverance to these three men. Remember who your God is and don't assimilate, don't change. So the application then, uh, just in passing really, uh, for the original community... And secondly, I want to spend, thirdly, I want to spend a bit of time now thinking about us and how we apply this. A couple of things to talk about. First is, the first point of us taking a story like this and applying it and seeing how it's relevant is just the same as the way that the original community had to take it and understand it. Because if you're a Christian, you probably know where you're challenged to just merge in and become Uh, like everybody else, not to stand out for Jesus, not to say Christ is the way to salvation. And in fact, there is a need for salvation in the first place because that's almost a heresy here and now. That's not, broadly speaking, what our culture believes, that there is a way to be saved and Jesus is the way. And so the pressure on us, I think, is uh, to assimilate um, you, you may well have heard somebody say to you, you may be in an experience where, maybe at work, or maybe in your neighborhood, uh, in different ways where you hold fast to who you are as a Christian, and uh, it really it upsets people in different ways. So you, maybe just by saying, I'm going, what, are you, what are you doing tonight? I'm going to the prayer meeting. You go to the prayer meeting? You go, you go to church on a Wednesday as well as a Sunday? Well, you must really believe that stuff. Or whatever it is. What I think uh, society wants of Christians is to have an easygoing Christianity. 
a Christianity which says, uh, yeah, it's, it's part of my life, but it's not that important. Yeah, I do, you know, it doesn't really get in the way of who I am, and it certainly doesn't make me relate to other people and explain to them that they need this Jesus too. <coughs> That's the taboo in our society, I think. So, uh, you and I face pressure to be, to be uh, tapered down, tempered down Christians. Play it down a bit. Don't be too uh, big for Jesus. Don't tell people that they're sinners and that they need, they need Jesus. They're called to assimilate, where biblical things are at stake. And uh, so I think the challenge then for us, of course, is uh, where our culture would want to change our gospel. We'd want to change the gospel and make it watered down and much less. The challenge for us is to take the gospel and change the culture. And again, to see the power of God at work, uh, not in such a physical way, but in a spiritual way, as we bring the gospel to those who we're around. So the first thing is simply that same thing of being faithful. Our God still hasn't changed. He's still the same covenant-making God who promises salvation for his people. And of course, we understand that. He has done that through Jesus Christ. And our call is to remain faithful. Because he is faithful. He doesn't change. Secondly, second thing about our application of this story. Understanding the fourth man. Understanding God, salvation, Christ's presence, and the way that God deals with believers who face trouble. How do we understand that? Because again, this isn't just a story about a miracle. We could leave the story there, but then we'd be missing out. It's not even just a story about Jesus saving some people from a fiery pit. Because... Uh, then we'd be missing out. This passage, what this does for you and me is it points us towards who Jesus is and it points us towards the work of Jesus and the deliverance of him. First to say though, regarding the trials that we'll go through, is that Jesus doesn't always save you or me from the trials that we go through. In this instance, he saved the three friends. But he didn't always save people in the Bible from the trials that they faced. Not everybody was delivered from death. God has the power to save. But in his will and in his mind, as he knows his purposes, he doesn't always save. That's really important to point out, I think. Uh, He doesn't always save us from the temporal, physical trials that we face. Or from persecution. Or from the times when we are, or Christians, or believers, are, have an awful time because of their faith in God. Doesn't always save. First Peter chapter four. Let me just read this verse. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful ordeal, or some translations say the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised. I uh, was reading a book this week, Uh, I just dipped into it really, and it's a book written by a guy who's an atheist, and he's very much not a Christian, and what he's doing in the book is he's challenging, he's not just challenging Christianity, he's challenging a kind of humanism that says humans are, there's no God, we're atheists, but humans are great, and this guy's even further down the line, and he says there's no God, and humans are not great, we're just animals, 
there's no point to us. What he says almost at one point we're like parasites. Anyway, at one point he's writing about the fact that salvation just isn't possible. So he's trying to undermine Christianity. And he quotes a poet, and the poet says this. And it's uh, very relevant to this. And it has to do with suffering. The lines are, Of what use is it to me that this man has suffered, Jesus, if I am suffering now? Of what use is it to me that this man, Jesus, has suffered if I am suffering now? In other words, and you need to, you need to get this. What's he saying about what he understands the purpose of Jesus to be. What he's saying is, if I still suffer, what's the point in Jesus? So therefore his understanding is that Jesus alleviates all suffering now. But if we think like that, and can I ask the question even as Christians, are we sometimes tempted to think like that? I believe in Jesus, life is still so hard. What's he doing? Why have, I thought he would smooth things out for me. If we think that by believing in Jesus he'll smooth the cracks of life, then we're mistaken. Remember what the three friends say in verse 18. Can I just point you back to that verse? They've said, we believe in our God. They've said, we think he'll save us. But then they say this, even if he does not, we want you to know, King, that we will not serve your gods. See, they weren't obeying God just because they thought they'd get something out of it. They weren't obeying God because they thought he'd make everything okay. They were obeying God because he was their Lord. And they knew his character. And they loved him. And they knew his deliverance. So suffering for us is something that we are sometimes called to. Physical, everyday suffering. Or even persecution in different ways. And uh, we won't necessarily be delivered from it. So understanding suffering I think that's a key thing for us to pick up from this please don't go away thinking wow look how God delivered these people right now I will pray that he will take all my troubles away he may do but that is not the way that we are to expect him to work but finally here's the thing is that when we think about what Jesus did here the way that God worked to deliver what it does is it points us forward because it points towards the ultimate act of deliverance that Jesus completed finished on the cross and that is the spiritual deliverance that every one of us needs and that he can give the spiritual deliverance from our sin I want to ask a couple of questions just as we come to the end what's your greatest fear what terrifies you don't say nothing There is something within us all that we worry about. And uh, I suppose in a very tangible way that we would say, if if Jesus gave you the opportunity to fix one thing, what would it be? It may be sometimes that these things become the be-all and end-all for us. And that is the primary focus. And that is what we take to God. And that is the main thing that we think Jesus needs to deal with in our lives. A particular difficulty we have. And that's fine. I don't mean that we can't pray about our everyday situations to the Lord. But another question... Do you, be, do you believe, do you agree with the Bible's verdict that your greatest, most pressing need is to have your sin dealt with? That your sin separates you from God? That is the, that is the if we haven't understood that that is the most pressing thing we, could, we will ever face, the separation that we face from God because of our sin, 
and the separation that we'll face eternally if that's not dealt with, then that is the thing we need to get right now. That is the thing that we need to understand primarily. Because as terrifying as this situation was, the furnace, again, which of us would like to be thrown into a huge fiery pit? Absolutely not, of course. But we face, if you like, a fire that is more terrible. And that's the, 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 the honest um, testimony of the Bible that we have to confront, isn't it? We face a fire that is more terrible, that is uh, the just, righteous God dealing with our sinfulness. We will all meet with God one day, and we'll have to give an account of how we dealt with that. And we can't do it by ourselves. That's the Bible's teaching. Do we really believe that that's the case? That we are sinful people? Again, is that not a societal taboo? Don't talk about that too much. But um, I would see it's so easy to see in other people maybe. You know, we hear of people in our communities breaking our, uh, the, the harmony of our communities, stealing. We hear of churches getting broken into. See it all the time, sin in other people. But do we accept the Bible's diagnosis that sin in our own hearts now and forever will separate us from God? Unless you are Christ's. Unless your refuge is in Jesus. Unless he's your deliverer. Unless he is the one who has saved you. And he will save you because he completed the work on the cross. And uh, that you believe that he went there. If you think about it like this, that greatest fire to have the anger of God at sin. Jesus went there, didn't he? On the cross, Jesus went there. Jesus undertook that terrible ordeal for his people so that they might believe in him. And uh, so, if that is your trust, then you can rejoice with uh, the three friends because you know the deliverance of the Lord. And uh, you know the joy of having, of having that deliverance. And you can say, like it says in Colossians chapter 1, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you. He's brought you back together with God by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy. That is your experience if Christ is your deliverer. To present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So what a wonderful miracle this story shows us. What a great God who is powerful to save. What an extraordinary miracle he did back then in time and space. But don't not see the greater deliverance that this points towards. The deliverance from our sin from Jesus. Christ is the great deliverer. And uh, my prayer is that he is your deliverer. And that you know that this morning. Let me pray. Lord, we praise you for your work. We praise you for the fact that you didn't leave us as our sins deserved. We see your commitment towards your people in the pages of your word. We see extraordinary ways in which you saved your people. Great miraculous ways. But we also know, Lord, that you, you say that our greatest need is uh, that we be reconciled with you. That we have our sins dealt with. I pray that none of us this morning would go out of here without without dealing with that. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross. We praise you because you are such a great deliverer who is able and powerful to save. 
and we lift up your name this morning. Amen.